0: Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash excelsiorjourneys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary then you are on an excelsior journey and you are not alone welcome back to excelsior journeys my name is george saroy thank you so much for being here for this week and thank you for uh so much for being here in previous weeks we're getting very close to uh, 1,300 downloads. And I really appreciate everyone who's taken the time to listen to at least one episode of this show. Um, and also a big thank you to everyone who came out for the Clayton Studios seminar that I did on podcasting. And it was it was a lot of fun to put that uh, that seminar together, a lot of fun to put the PowerPoint presentation together. And I hope you all learned so much about getting your podcast up and running. And for those of you who weren't there, Uh, We are planning to repeat this seminar over at Clayton Studios in the very near future. Uh, Very likely will be happening this month. So um, please uh, reach out to ClaytonStudios.com for more information, and I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Now, it was a real blessing for me to be accepted into the BA Theater Arts Program at Marymount Manhattan College, as opposed to the BFA Acting Program at Marymount Manhattan College. Because by getting into the theater department with the concentration in acting, that opened things up for me to take a lot more electives that I wouldn't have been able to take if I had just done the acting program. And a big thing that I was able to do was I was able to take playwriting. And this played a big role in me kind of getting back in touch with writing in general. And it was a real thrill to do that, especially because of the classmates. One in particular really struck me as as an absolute genius when it comes to playwriting. Um, Because one of the first things that we had to do was we had to basically put together a scene for our first assignment. And it was just like about maybe, I don't know, like about five, maybe 10 minutes. And the scene that this particular gentleman wrote was called 84. And this was this was a scene that had um, had one had a couple of kids that were sitting outside the principal 's office, um, and one of the kids was this Lisa Simpson type of character who was dressed head to toe in a radiation suit because she had just seen the movie the day after and so the entire conversation was just about. Um, Everything that was going wrong with uh, w- with what was happening in the world, and it's because of all the radiation. And um, and the the boy is was you know just kind of like dismissing it all because he was too busy watching Webster. And it really struck me the um, the whole conversation. It was just so so funny, and it was so sharp, and just a real great piece of material. And I was just thinking, like, okay, this is somebody I really need to be friends with. And it turns out that uh, that happened very quickly because I became friends, and I'm very blessed to say I became friends with playwright Jonathan Norton. And uh, Jonathan and I wound up, uh, you know, we both were in were freshmen at uh, Marymount Manhattan College. Uh, we went on to become uh, roommates my our uh, senior year, and. I, I can't even say that I got to watch him grow as a playwright because the guy was already a genius. I just got to see him become more of a genius as a playwright. And he has gone on to continue chasing that dream, that passion, and he's been able to cultivate it and grow with it so much that he has now become a successful playwright in the Dallas, Texas area. And uh, he's somebody who is a perfect example of living an excelsior journey and I'm so glad that he's here with us today. So without further ado, let me introduce you to my friend Jonathan Norton. Jonathan, how are you, sir? Hey George, how are you? I, I am doing great man i can I still just remember the and i it was definitely a, a big uh, you know like uh, one thing that really helped with the with your 84 script was the reading uh, that was that was done with it it was just so funny it was so funny <laughs> so unforgettable too it was one of those great moments of just like just listening to the two actors i know b anthony gibson played the um, played the boy and i'm trying oh to remind you right and i'm trying to remember who played the girl um but she nailed it she absolutely nailed it and because she had that that sort of Lisa Simpson vibe to her delivery. Was it
1: Annalise?
0: Was it Annalise? I think it was. I think it, I think you're right. I think I think you're right. But uh, yeah, it was it was just like I w- I was, you know, <laughs> it was just so funny, and um, I just remember just knowing that like okay, I'm gonna hang out with this guy. I'm you know just definitely you know, definitely, it, definitely learn
1: from him. Yeah. So it, it's so funny that you mentioned. 84 because in a lot of ways uh, later, like after I graduated from Marymount and started writing and working outside of college, that played a huge impact on on me actually really um, understanding my voice and owning it in an interesting way because uh, I was in a, a one act play festival here in Dallas. I handed and that was the, that was the play that was produced, and I handed it over to a really close friend and uh, a very trusted collaborator who I'd worked with uh a few years prior, and I was so excited about you know about the show and and seeing it come to life, and it didn't it just really it crashed and burned it absolutely crashed and burned uh-huh. and I know, right? But what I realized Aww. in the process was the reason why it crashed and burned was in that particular instance, because I'm I'm typically not um not a fan of, of playwrights directing their own work usually. But there's okay. some there's some instances in which it's like the voice is so specific. And yeah. trying to convey that voice to a group of actors and also then uh, concurrently to, to an audience is so difficult that there's some instances in which like, no, you just have to take ownership of this and tell this story. Right. And Mm -hmm. so after that experience, um, I was in another, um, I went out to play festival (laughs) at at the same theater and that, that particular year I was like, Hey, I think I want to just do this myself. Just, you know, let me direct this myself. And it was everything that I thought it could be and expected it to be, and it was so awesome. And what's particularly interesting about this whole situation is this particular one-act play festival, it was one of those where like the audience gets to vote every night, right, for like the play. Mm -hmm. And that first year when we did 84, 84, I think, was like, out of like, out of six plays, it came in, I think, like fifth place. Oh wow. Yeah, right. Uh but that same theater had this thing called the literary prize, where like the the um panelists, the readers for the competition who select the plays, they pick one play to get like the literary prize, and I got the literary prize. So it's weird. It was like I got the literary prize, but I came in fifth place. And so the next year I was like, screw this, I'm doing it all myself, right? Yeah. I actually won first place, which is the weirdest thing. <laughs> which is cool too. It was really affirming. Um, I I still am not a huge fan of directing my own stuff, but I don't know why. That was just a very interesting. It was a very interesting learning experience, in part because it was an opportunity for me to understand my voice in such a way, to then be able to go and convey it to directors and other collaborators like. Hey, this is what this is, and this is how you can do it, and this is how you can do it successfully.
0: Yeah. Now, before you did, you know, before that one, before the, uh, you came to Marymount, you had already done a couple of plays beforehand, and those plays were very, very much like kind of you know dark comedies uh, with a real great, you know, like biting kind of wit to it. And then years later, you have something that's that's out now that is if i'm not mistaken a much kind of a much different tone correct yes yeah so um wow. before we jump into your origin story tell us a little bit about this latest production that you have mississippi goddamn
1: uh, Well, actually uh, mississippi goddamn is a play uh that i wrote in uh 20 i started work on it in like 20 god ah, like 2011 actually um and then it received a production at the South Dallas Cultural Center in 2015 and then that production or that play was nominated by Mark Lowry who has this thing here in Dallas called Theater Jones it's an online performing arts uh website uh he and he's also a member of of the um uh the the uh atc the american theater critics association and so he nominated it for um their their big national prize that they do each year um and and so he nominated it for that and it was a finalist and it ended up being a finalist uh, alongside like sweat by lynn Nottage, and like all of these are like, crazy awesome playwrights so i could never imagine in a million years like being in the company uh, up, but it was nominated alongside all of these amazing plays. Uh, So it was like six six plays that were nominated and I didn't win, but I did win uh, from the same organization, um, the M. Elizabeth Osborne Award, which is given to an emerging playwright. Um, And so, uh, and then it had a production in Des Moines, Iowa, (laughs) Uh, like about two years later. And in June of 2020, it will be produced at the Playhouse on the Square in Memphis. Um, And I think a few other things possibly on the horizon, but those aren't confirmed yet. So um, yeah, uh, Mississippi Goddamn. And then also... Currently, I'm working on a play uh, titled "Penny Candy." Penny Candy. Penny Candy. Okay. And uh, that's being produced at the Dallas Theater Center this June. And that's basically a, it's a fairly, it's a largely autobiographical play, and it's it's about my family when I was growing up. My mom and dad ran a candy house, like a neighborhood mom and pop store like out of our house Mm -hmm. and it tells the story of the candy house at the same time that crack cocaine uh was invading in the neighborhood so wow um, so that's what i'm working on now um i just finished what i believe to be the draft that we will go into rehearsal with in may um And so that's, I'm doing that. And then I have, I'm working on a commission for the Dallas Theater Center uh, that I haven't really started yet. I'm like in like this planning process of like trying to put the story together in my mind, trying to figure out who the characters are and what have you. Uh, but I hope to do that, to start actually actively writing that soon would be useful, would be helpful. Yeah. Uh, but- the other thing I'm doing right now, which I'm really, really, really nervous about, uh, actually, I have to do it today, oh. is write rejection letters. Ooh. And I've never done that before. And I've always <laughs> been at the end of rejection letters. You know what I have I have, I likely have many, many, many rejection letters I can pull from to figure out <laughs> eight, You know what I mean? But at the same time, I'm like, I just. You know, it's yeah. So I'm, I've, I've been stressing out about that since yesterday. Well, actually, since maybe like last week, because I knew that I was going to have to do it. Yeah. But yeah. Wow. Not- so yeah, you
0: definitely have uh, a lot on your plate there. So yeah. Between, <laughs> so. <laughs> so um, so with all of this in mind, let's go back to the beginning here. You said that you said that uh, your parents were run, you know, run a little uh, can- you know, penny candy shop out of their house. Uh-huh. A candy uh Candy house. Yeah, so what was it about playwriting that grabbed you and just basically just kind of said, this is the direction you're going to go in in life? What is it about it that, you know, that, what was that lightning bolt moment for you? Was there like a particular show that you saw that you just realized that that was going to be what you were going to, what you were going to do?
1: Um, what was that whole thing? Tell us your origin story. Yes, uh, when I was 15 years old, I did a production of of Joe Turner's Come and Gone uh, by August Wilson. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that was my first real introduction to like an actual play, <laughs> like to the theater, mm-hmm. besides sing a Christmas Carol when I was in the sixth grade or something. Um, and so anyway, August Wilson's work just had such an enormous impact on me and I remember uh when I was working on the show uh once the show went up and we were in production and performance on the weekends we had matinees and so you know I'd be stuck or stuck at the theater like all day and so I started writing like monologues and little scenes um, that and then I would cast like the actors like backstage for like they were coming off stage like from their scene, you know. And I, I would just like grab them and like cast them to like to like read my monologue or like act out the scene I had written. And one of the actresses who I still work with a lot today who was in that production, uh, she jokes about how they used to hide in the dressing room. They'd be like, "Oh my god, he's coming. He has to play. Hide. Turn off the lights." You know, that whole thing. Uh, <laughs> And so it started with that. And then also when I was at Theater 3 working on that play, uh, the stage manager, uh, it's really awesome. Her name was T- uh, Terry uh, tittle Hogman. She would let me borrow plays from uh, her script library in her office. And so because of that, I, it was my first time Encountering the Colored Museum by George C. Wolf. and you know how much of a George C. Wolf fan I am.
0: Oh so yes, yes. I remember. I remember. Like, I, I, remember yes. the, uh, I remember you holding up the pen that he used to sign. <laughs> then he signed, phone. right? So they used her, to sign her, the and thing. And bringing the funk. Yeah, I I remember that very well.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and the and the poster that he gave me that he let me take yep. off the wall. Like, oh, you like it? Take it. You know, I'm like, yes. So so it's, it's, I, yeah, that was, that was, uh, talk about a seminal of, moment right there. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? Talk about a seminal moment right there. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, and so I got to, I encountered his work because of her. And then also the work of, of many other playwrights, um, uh, like Douglas Turner Ward. I read Happy Ending and A Day of Absence. And those two plays had like an enormous impact on me so it really all started like at theater three uh performing in joe turner's coming Gone, and at that same time i was a freshman uh at the arts magnet here in dallas um and so at booker t which is the name of the arts magnet uh they we had a playwriting emphasis or like you could take playwriting pro, uh, playwriting from like your sophomore year until your senior year and so my sophomore year, I enrolled in playwriting uh, and it just kind of, I guess, snowballed from there. Um, and in my senior year, oh yeah, in my senior year, our playwriting teacher, um, she knew that a few of us had like one-act plays that she thought we should we should uh, get out there in the world. And so she told us about the, uh, the Texas Young Playwrights Festival. And uh, told us to apply, and we all applied, and, and I got in. And so that was, like, a really uh, important experience for me as well.
0: So the, um, that play, now, I remember there were two plays that really kind of stuck out to me, um, knowing what, um, knowing, the, you know, the kind of plays that, uh, that you had written before you got to Marymount. Uh, one was Sacrilege or Good Intentions. Uh-huh. And, then the, and then the other one was Our Lady of South Oak Cliff, The Virgin Shaniqua.
1: Shaniqua, um, yes.
0: Yeah. So which which uh which one did you use that got you into that into that festival? Was it the It Chiniqua? was
1: Our Lady of Sothocliffe the Virgin Shaniqua.
0: Yeah. Now tell tell my tell the listeners about this one. I absolutely love this <laughs> uh,
1: okay. So Our Lady of Sathocliffe, the Virgin Shaniqua was a play about a young girl named Shaniqua a fifteen year old girl named Shaniqua. Who lives in South Oak Cliff, which is a, an area of Dallas, and uh, she she's a te- quickly she's a teenage mother, or she's going to become a teenage mother. She's pregnant when we meet her, but she is convinced her mother, El that the baby is actually the second coming of Christ. How she convinced her mother, I don't know. But she convinces her mom that it's the second coming of Christ, and her mama is all caught up in planning for Jesus coming back to earth through her 15-year-old daughter's womb. And so it's like a whole production. She's planning this. She's got everything. Like She's got the hotel set up so he won't have to be born in a you know, it we really, come <laughs> into the world in a barn. <laughs> that's that's the moment that, that animals got animals and stuff. Like she had it all together.
0: That's but... the moment that I remember the most. It was the moment where she, she gets down on her knees and yells to the stomach, Jesus, if you hear me, don't worry about the manger. We got a room set up for you at the holiday Inn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that was fantastic. <laughs> I and I then, never I never read this I never read the script, but just you know like my, when you told me about that, I was like, I'm never going to forget <laughs> this genius. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then but the the thing that throws it all off is that Shaniqua's boyfriend, Quincy, uh who's mm-hmm. also five years old, um very much wants to take responsibility his child and actually to be a father and to be recognized as the father of her child and so then you have this 15 year old kid like trying to figure out how to like throw a win or you know how to figure out how to um convince elnora that you're delusional and i'm the father of the child yeah it was really cool. Yeah, that was... And then and, sacrilege. I, I always thought sacrilege. It was about uh, three nuns and, and they're like stuck at the convent or whatever while the other nuns and the other people at the convent have gone to like Jerusalem for some pilgrimage or something. And they're all there alone. And while they're there, the devil appears and the devil uh, convinces them that he will he will turn to christ and be good and be a good christian if he can have sex with the with sister mary i forget what her name was but she was like the really sweet innocent young nun and so Mm -hmm. he could have sex with her that would make him pure and (laughs) he would become a christian (laughs) and so sister i think it was sister mary agnes who's like left in charge She's kind of power-hungry and, like, wants to, like, you know, whatever, like, storm the Vatican or something. I don't know. She's real power-hungry. So she's like, that sounds like a great idea. So she convinced (laughs) Sister Mary Margaret or whatever Sister Mary – whatever that one was saying. So convinces her to have sex with the devil so that – yeah. And so Sister Mary Margaret – or whichever sister it is to have sex with the devil – has sex with the devil, and then like a day later, she's pregnant because you know it is the devil. And I guess that yeah. happened. So a day later, she's pregnant, and and then the devil like skips town, as the devil would likely do. um And so yeah, so that was and that was I was like what, a senior in high school, like yeah, yeah,
0: uh, yeah. I I just remember just thinking, <laughs> yeah, that that one won't play well at the Bible Belt, you know. The- I know, right. <laughs> But at the same time like it it plays up to it plays up to everything that is true you know like you you know like no matter no matter how you know no matter how holy you know like you know someone will be there's always going to be that sort of breaking point where they're going to think like if I do this then i'll then you know every then i'll be known as the one who who did this and right you know, exactly like, i'll be known that i'll have brought you know satan to repent his ways and <laughs> right. but at the same time satan is still satan so i'm just like right. it really is it's like something that um i it everything just plays up to exactly what it is what we know it all to be um right so yeah that was yeah when, when i heard when i heard about those i was just like yeah we're, we're, we're gonna be friends <laughs> we're just we're I'm gonna uh, <laughs> i definitely knew it was just like yeah we're gonna be friends (laughs) so so um so during that time during the time that we were we were both at marymount um i know that you know like like you said you had gotten to um you would gotten to meet george seawolf obviously a huge 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 moment um and later on you also you know like wound up getting into the um what is it the uh the right the what was it called? The workshop that Richard Niles did was it the um, the was it writer director workshop or something like that? Was oh no, a, I
1: didn't get writer. into that. I thought you did. I thought you you would, uh you would. No, uh, I didn't. I didn't. I did not. Uh-uh. Really? Oh, no. so I'm, I'm I'm I must have been thinking like, is I know there was something that you wrote
0: that wound up getting that wound up getting put up in the black box theater. Um, I remember like um, you know like uh, um, Ollie Green was in it. Um, there was um
1: who was it was it was it was it a directing project
0: it was a directing project yeah yeah i remember it's like the second semester or something like that i think oh wait
1: was it the was it the susan it was i did a a directing a susan rory parks play in the directing projects and ali was the assistant director ali green was assistant director there was maybe that's and i remember because. One of the props in the in the play was a big giant cockroach. Okay. Yeah. And what was so funny was I always remember me and, and Allie on the bus, <laughs> in like on uh on the Upper East Side. Yep. Yeah. From like the Hirsch residence to to the theater. Yeah. Two young black men on a New York City bus. On the Upper East Side, carrying a big-ass cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's
0: what I'm thinking of because, like, that must have been it because I know that there was um, – it must not have been you – know, yeah, it must have been, you know, like, a directing project that you did and not, you know, something that you had written because I remember yeah. you used the theme of what's happening at the beginning and the end. That was it that was it that, that was it okay Park's
1: play, uh-huh
0: okay, I could've sworn that that was that that was your play at first no. um but you know, like but that you know so you got the taste of directing, but then you know like after that, um you know that's when we you know went our separate ways. I think you went yeah. back to Dallas at that point right uh-huh all right so uh, so you go back to dallas and but at the same you know like so when did you start writing again? Like when, when did that, because I know that there were a couple of ideas you had that you were playing around with, um, during, during uh, our senior year together and, you know, nothing ever came of it, but then, you know, like, um, but then, um, after graduation, you went, you know, you went back to Dallas. What happened after that? What happened after we lost touch?
1: Uh, I came back, I got like a job or whatever to make money. Uh, Mm -hmm. I started working with uh, uh, mostly African American theater companies uh, mm-hmm. here in in town. Uh, I started first. I started stage managing uh, because at Marymount, you know, part of the directors, I was like a directing emphasis person, whatever, and part of it was like you had to stage manage. So I came back home and started stage managing. Um, I did a show with. Do you know Kiki Shepard from the Apollo?
0: Um, the name's not, not coming to me.
1: Um, was she is she like one of the co-hosts or something? Like- she was like a host for the Apollo back in the day. No, she, was, she was like a co-host, and she never really spoke very much. She just came out. She's like the Vanna White of the Apollo. So like she okay. did a show, and I stage managed it. So I did a lot of stage managing. And then I had this moment of complete and absolute vanity. I mean, it was nothing but shameless me, 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 me. But I got to this point where I got annoyed with the fact that nobody ever reviews the stage manager. Like, you don't pick up a paper and somebody's like, oh, my God, and the show was called so brilliantly by so-and-so. And so I got really <laughs> upset. <laughs> I know, it's stupid and it's really vain. It's absolutely vain. But um, so then I was like, this whole stage management thing, I don't know about this anymore because I need more recognition. I know no. that's embarrassing to admit, but it was true. <laughs> we all we all
0: feel that. You know, it's we all feel I like- know, it's horrible, right? And and well we we also you know like we also went through four years at Merrima Manhattan College where you know like we were basically, you know, we we were the writers, we were the directors, we were the actors, we were, you know, like everything and every every everything about you know like that little spot on seventy first and third. Like that was right. that was our training ground. And then you know like then you go out into the world and all of a sudden it's just like no one, you know, like you're basically starting from you're starting from the ground again. Right and so yeah it's it's very easy to have that sort of mentality of just like you know well you know it needs to be about me because it's always been about me you know and <laughs> right. for those four
1: I guess years, that, that's true that's you know, very true
0: you know so now all of a sudden now all of a sudden there's the you know the real world is out there and now it's just like okay i gotta make my name again exactly and, and not only do i have to do that but i have to keep doing it because not only do i have to you know like you know get this project off the ground whatever it winds up being but then after that i got to start all the way down from the bottom again and start building my myself right. back up again so yeah i totally un- understand that i mean this is the show you know this particular show like this is what i'm doing you know right now to try to get my name mm-hmm. out there and not just you know like Yes, I'm trying to get, you know, like get the names of everyone who is a guest out there because I all, I believe every single one of you deserves to have your name out there. But at the same time, I want to be out there too, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I, you know, like I, I get it. I get exactly what, uh, what it is that you mean. So yeah, you want to get that sort of notoriety in, you know, like it's, it's almost like it's all, its own little drug, you know? And, um, but at the same yeah. time it, uh, you know, so, some of, you know, and it, in some cases it can be just as harmful but at the same time if you know what you're doing with this and right. you actually use it as prescribed then you know then uh, and I, it could wind up working for you
1: and I, I think for me part of it also was the fact that i realized that there are other things that i could be doing and other things that I actually should be doing um uh, mm-hmm. compared to that particular moment i had um Actually, Our Lady of South Cliff, the Virgin Shaniqua, had been produced like the summer before, and that same theater company where I was stage managing at, um, they produced it. And the reason why they produced it, in part, was because one of my high school teachers was talking to the artistic, artistic director and I was like, oh, you know, he's also a really amazing playwright. And so the artistic director came to me and was like, hey, we hear you're a playwright. You know, we have this play festival. You need to be applying to it like that. And so uh, they wouldn't let, she wouldn't let me off the hook. And so Mm -hmm. every month, you know, this is before Facebook and email and whatnot and text messaging. So every few months I'd get a phone call from Gwena, uh, Gwena Bennett, and she'd be like, hey, uh, I need you to make sure you submit your play. And every few months, I'd get that until finally I was like, okay, fine. And so I said, Shaniqua. Um, um, yeah. And so and then I went back to stage managing. And I think I, I think I had that moment of realizing, like, oh, I really enjoyed that. And that's actually something that I can make a name for myself with. And I don't really necessarily see where this stage management thing is going. However, looking back on it now, I can certainly say one of the great things about stage managing So if you're really, really, really good at it, that can actually open a lot of doors because there's so many um, types of opportunities and theaters that are hard to get access to for playwrights. But if you're a stage manager and you're really good at it, that can actually open some doors and you can start working with amazing directors and other playwrights and your artistic staff and the production staff at different theaters and meet a whole lot of people and and really create really authentic and genuine working relationships with some really awesome people that can also if you happen to be an aspiring also happen to be an aspiring aspiring director or an aspiring playwright you now have connections to people that a lot of people who are struggling to get their work out there don't have connect, don't have those same connections you know what I mean? So, oh yeah. So there are certainly times when I was like, maybe I should have stuck with that stage. <laughs> <laughs> hey, like, there are certainly times when I when I felt that way. <laughs>
0: yeah. But um. But since then, I mean, si- since then you've gotten to add more to your body of work, though, correct? Yes. You know, like yes. To, you know, get more. You know, get get your name out there more. You know, like, I've been seeing. You know, I've definitely been seeing it. Um, on your social media page and so with that in mind out of the uh, once you started you know like really writing again um, did you want to stay with that sort of you know same kind of um, biting dark comedy tone or did you want to just kind of like shift it to something else did you want to try like a good mix of everything what's you know like what was what was your thought going into this next era of playwriting for you?
1: Mm, thank you. Um, I certainly want it to shift. Um, yeah. I, I felt like, and again, this is maybe vanity speaking. It's probably a completely vain thing. <laughs> I was like, I got to a point where I felt like the funny, quirky, biting, dark comedy it like sometimes it can be difficult for that to I think it can resonate in performance. Like people see it and have the opportunity to experience it, it can certainly resonate there. But I mm. learned was that in terms of of it being read and and selected for different opportunities, it's it's really difficult and hard and for also for people to to look at something, because this is what it was. I'm going all around the way, and this is what I mean. To The thing that I started struggling with was that people would see my stuff and somehow called it light. They were like, oh, it's so nice and light because it makes me laugh. So it's light. And I would get mm. upset about that. I would get really upset when people would call my work light. <laughs> so I just kind of got to this point where I was like, screw that i don't want to write anything light now having said that humor is so much so much a part of my life that there's absolutely no way i could write anything that 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 doesn't make you laugh (laughs) you know what i mean right Uh, even though laughter is not at the center of what that experience is but you know there's when there's laughter even in like the darkest circumstance. Um, And I would say that I I didn't think that I necessarily wanted to write dark plays, but I just wanted to write things that I felt were more serious or dramatic. Mm -hmm. Just thought I would just be taken seriously. I know that kind of sounds stupid to say that, but that's honestly what I thought. Um, At that same time that I was trying to make that transition I was in the uh, Master's of Liberal Studies program at Southern Methodist University and one of my professors, uh, this amazing woman named Vicki Meek, uh, she's uh, a, a visual artist um, and she used to be like one of those like really like radical, like fight the power, like 1960s kind of people um, and I love her so much. Uh, she was one of my uh, professors and eventually became my advisor for a play that I wanted to write as part of an independent study project. Um, and I think, she, I don't think, I know, because she told me that one of the reasons why she was excited to, to work on the project and why she agreed to do it was because she was very, very familiar with my work. Uh, she had seen it, you know, years before, and, and was very impressed by it. But she said that when I told her that I was really looking to kind of transition and make a shift and try new things, that that was the thing that really sold her on the independent study project. Um, and so I, I started working with her. Uh, I came up with an idea to write a play about the Atlanta child murders, mm-hmm. uh, that took place in Atlanta between 1979 and 1981. Um, oh, wow. I started working on that just basically as an independent study uh, class project. And as I came toward the end of the semester and our time was almost up, I had a meeting. Uh, like you know, we had to go in every few weeks for a meeting with your advisor for the independent independent study. So I went to. The South Dallas Cultural Center, because at that time, Vicki was the manager of the South Dallas Cultural Center. And I went in having have a meeting to talk about the play and its development and where it was. And actually, at this point, I had only written like 10 pages of the play. Uh, really? I, yeah, I'd, I'd had this entire process. That was What it was, was I came up with this idea, because Vicki is a visual artist. She's not a theater person, necessarily but she certainly uh, has a great love of the theater, um, but she's a visual artist. And so my idea was, and I had taken a visual arts course with her. So the idea was, what if I select an African-American visual artist, and then for half of the semester, I study and investigate their work. And then from that investigation, I come up with an, with a play that's inspired by their work. It's not a play that's like a literal adaptation of something they've done, but it's a play that's like based on their work and their aesthetic and the kind of themes that they explore. Here's the play that I want to write. Um, and so I did that and, and I started writing, like the, I gave her like a full draft. Here's the thing. I had written like a full draft of a play, right? That I turned and I thought it was awesome. And she reads it, and she's like, what is this cast for the Friendly Ghost shit? I don't like this. the whole ghost thing. And <laughs> It was, it, she was like, I don't like this. And she, mind you, she's not a theater person. So in yeah. terms of critiquing and how, like we're, like, we're taught to critique, you know, work in the theater, you know, it was just straight up like, this is the Atlanta child Murders we're talking about. Ah! You know, and she goes right. on and on. And she's like, you got to have to try this again. I, I, I don't like it. Because basically, it was these two kids, these two little black kids, who go on a search to find a dead kid. But then the dead kid they're looking for is this ghost that's, fu- that's with them. But the ghost is really cutesy. And there's all these cutesy interactions between the kids and the ghost. And she's like, what's this cast for the friendly ghost stuff? This is horrible. Like, you need to go back. Do this over again. And, like, and i'm thinking to myself wait this is not how we do things like, i don't understand what you're talking about but i went back again and i came back in with 10 new pages and that's all i had um yeah and then i had to do more work but we had a meeting and she was like you know i really like what you're doing and the direction you're going in and what have you and she says you know our, our time will be up soon but I wanna make sure that you keep working on this and I wanna make sure you don't give up on it. And then she said something that absolutely changed my life, like absolutely changed my life. She said, but the only way I can guarantee that you will keep doing this and keep working is if I give you money. Hmm, right, right? Oh, okay. (laughs) If I give you money, That would guarantee that you keep working on this. Now, at South Dallas Cultural Center, Vicky had created this thing called the Diaspora Performing Arts Commissioning Project. And it was created to provide money, commission money to artists to create work about the African-American experience. So she was like, I will give you one of my Diaspora Performing Arts Commissions, which at the time was like $2,500, which was like, Way more money that I had ever made doing anything in the theater like ever right
0: yeah that's that's no that's no small chunk of
1: change like that. Oh, right I was like I can pay my rent I mm-hmm. other videos, I can buy yep. some new shoes like there's a whole lot of stuff I can do with this money, right It mm-hmm. gave me that money to keep working on the play, and we eventually uh produced it, I think maybe like two years later, oh, that play was also. It got workshopped at the, the Black and Latino Playwrights Conference in San Marcos, Texas. And there I met this wonderful woman named Melissa Maxwell. She is um, an actress, a dramaturg, and a director. And she's based out of, out of New York City. And she was my director for the workshop at, at the Black and Latino Playwrights Conference. And oh, wow. one during breakfast. She handed me a list of places, a list of these different opportunities. And she's like, here are some other places you need to send your play to. And so I only sent it to like one, because I was lazy. but I only sent it to like one theater or one place on the list. And that was Playpen, which is a new play development conference in Philadelphia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a really great program that they do every year. Um, and so I submitted it there and it got in uh and she came down to philadelphia to work with me and to be my director but so that opportunity that one thing from vicky saying here's twenty five hundred dollars to keep working on this play you know led to really wonderful wonderful opportunities for me um so yeah that's a long story Story. That's
0: that's what this is all about, you know. That's that is your story. Like that's yeah. that's amazing. That's so cool. That that's somebody. It's it really makes all the difference when somebody just says like, you know, I am going to invest in you. That's basically right, exactly. what she did. You know, that's that's really what she did. She she saw your talent. She saw what you have to offer, and you right. realized that a a way to cultivate that to really you know watch it grow is to make sure that that's what you're doing that's what you're concentrating on right now and the best way to do that is to like you said make sure the your rent is paid make sure that you can you know you know pay some bills make sure that you can <laughs> right. leave, leave all that behind for just like this period of time so you can focus on this right and that's exactly. that's that's just awesome so what's the name of that of that play the the um the- uh that
1: play about the atlanta child murders uh it's titled uh, my tidy, li, my tidy list of terrors, my tidy list of terrors. Yes. Uh, and it actually comes from the title of, uh, the visual of, I, for that, because, you know, I said it was an independent study project mm-hmm. and exploring the work of an African-American visual artist. Well, I decided, uh, to, to, to explore the work of three artists, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a mother and her two daughters, uh, this wonderful woman uh, named Betty Saar, and she had, she's an African-American artist, um, and she had three daughters, but only two of them followed in her footsteps, I believe. Uh, Betty Saar, no, Alison Saar, who's a sculptor, and then Uh, Leslie Starr, I think, who's a painter, and she's kind of multi... Does a lot of different things, not just painting. And Leslie created this piece called My Tidy List of Terrors. And when I saw it, um, uh, it was... It was just so compelling and so captivating to me. And the title and, and how the title related to the image, all of it. And I just immediately... Like that's the title. That's the title of the play. And I I talked to Vicky Meek, and Vicky Meek was like, "Well, see if you can get in touch with Leslie before you use the title, because you just don't want to use somebody's title." You know what I mean? Right. So, uh, I found yeah, Leslie. And, and, and titles aren't again. copyrighted, but at the same time, it's just like yeah, yeah exactly. But
0: yeah, but you yeah. know,
1: in terms of, but it's just like a nice thing to do. Like if you know that you that title purposely came from something, and mm-hmm. you know. That potentially have you know reach out to someone um i think for most part it's because it was a, a visual artist an african-american visual artist and someone who's still living and so vicky was like just see if you can reach out and get the use for that title and i found her on facebook and she was awesome and that was great but then like i wrote mississippi goddamn and it's just kind of like well it's new to simone it's it feels like you can just do it this is a ton of you know what i mean whatever but um but yeah but I'm certainly happy that I reached out to Leslie. Kind of a nice thing to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So, um, so tell us a little bit about Mississippi Goddamn. Because, you know, when when I heard about this, I was just like, okay, this is definitely this is definitely different from the Jonathan Norton stuff that I know. So <laughs> Yeah, but at the same time, it was just like, like I love the fact that you're that you're going that you were taking this shot that you were going down this path. I because th- I, yeah. I knew that it was going to be nothing but good stuff for
1: you. So okay. um,
0: tell us tell us about tell us about this
1: uh, about Mississippi this Goddamn, takes uh, the first act takes place in 1963 and it tells the story of a family who lives right down the street from. The civil rights activist Medgar Evers, um, and the the daughter in this family has become very active in uh, in the protest, the NAACP protest happening in Jackson, Mississippi at that time. And as of her being very active in that, uh, has put her family in a in a very vulnerable uh, position. Of being looked at as the enemy uh, from some of their neighbors and also their coworkers and and you know and what have you um, and the father kind of hooks up with one of his neighbors who is trying to hatch a scheme to um, to intimidate and frighten. Metger Evers, so that Metger and his family will will move out of the neighborhood. Because uh, first of all, at that time, a lot of the people in the neighborhood were receiving um, threats from their employers, um, from the city, uh, to basically figure out a way to get Metger Evers not only out of your neighborhood, but out of Jackson, right? Uh, and yeah. then. So this is a very comfortable neighborhood and you had people who had fought so hard and for so long to be able to provide security and safety for their family from this very racist frightening world that they were living in and they had finally been able to secure that and someone like Matthew Evers comes along who is actually threatening um, that, that very fragile thing that they've tried so hard to create for their families. Um, and so that's act one. And then in act two, um, and oh, and act one ends with the assassination of Mector Evers. Um, and then act two actually takes place uh, five, year, five or six years earlier. Um, and we actually, in act two, we see the first and last, the first and only time Medgar Evers and Merle Evers came to visit that family, came to have like dinner with the family and it's like uh, a dinner party from hell. (laughs) And the play was inspired by uh, a a trip that I took uh, in 2011. At SMU, uh, we have this thing called the Civil Rights Pilgrimage. We're a bunch of students, we hop on a bus uh, with our facilitators and we visit several cities that were key cities uh, during the civil rights movement. And cities happened to be Jackson, Mississippi and we visited the home of, of Medgar Evers and Merle Evers. Wow. And our tour guide uh, told us the story of how many of his neighbors uh, kind of pitched in to try to raise money to uh, convince, to basically, here's the money, take this money and move. So wow. <laughs> he tried on many, um, a few, uh, to buy him out of the neighborhood and he refused every offer. And also, uh, there are times when, you know, he traveled a lot, he was always up and down the road. And Merle Evers was alone with the kids. And if you can only imagine like the kind of fear that she must have experienced you know, have experienced with her husband putting his life in danger, traveling up and down the road, but then also knowing that her, she and her children, their lives were in danger, because no telling who was looking at them and why and what have you and what kind of horrible phone calls they were getting in the middle of the night. And so she was telling us these stories, and I just remember thinking to myself, "Oh my God, there's a play in here somewhere." Um, yeah. So I, I wrote the play. I uh, did one draft of it, and it did okay. It was it became a finalist for the O'Neill, which was really cool. Yeah, yeah. And I knew that it needed. I knew it needed, still needed more work, and I talked to Vicki Meek again. Vicki Meek, there's that name. And he's yep. like, okay, let's go ahead and produce it. Let's do it. Let's develop it. And then let's produce it. And so um, we had that other play, My Tidy List of Terrors. We produced that in like 2012, I believe, like the fall. Yeah. I, like the fall. No, no. The early winter of 2012, I think. I know it's okay. We learned a lot from that experience because at South Dallas Cultural Center, they had never really produced a play before, like full-on produced a play. Um, So we learned a lot from that. And so when Vicky talked to me about uh, doing Mississippi Goddamn, she was like, let's do it, but we're gonna do things different. So we were able to, because South Dallas Cultural Center is part of the city of Dallas, so they get, funding from, like, the Office of Cultural Affairs. So this is amazing. I mean, this is unheard of. Vicky Meek was able to get me $13,000 just to develop a Now We're not talking producing it. We're not talking yeah. producing it. No. That's not the budget. That's for you to, <laughs> to, to develop a That's amazing. So that is have- amazing. Right, so we had money to hire the director to like, um, to kind of like hire, bring her on early, and have enough money to like keep her in that process for like a year or so. Um, yeah. Money to have like a variety of different like we had some small table readings mostly. Uh, that you know we were paying people like fifty dollars for like this, the table readings because it, wasn't, no, it was not it's like one one evening and like maybe one hundred and fifty dollars when we did like a two day workshop. Uh, but then eventually, at a few months later, we had like a big staged reading that mm-hmm. involved like a week of rehearsal. Oh wow! We were able to pay like everybody like five like five hundred dollars for the rehearsal, and like pay like the design, bring in designers, and like basically we had thirteen thousand dollars to workshop and to develop the play over. The- and then after that. Um, for the production through the city, I think she was able to get like fifteen thousand from the city for the production, and I got a grant from the um from Mid America Arts Alliance for fifteen thousand dollars. So it's like thirty thousand dollars for the production, which for like a small theater like group or whatever, it's like a lot of money to put on a show. But what yeah. she then did, which is really crazy and also life-changing, was she basically said, okay, Jonathan, you're responsible for this. So here's this big pot of $30,000. You're responsible for producing this play. I don't know anything about producing it. Well, I, I, me, Jonathan, certainly did not know anything about producing a play. But Vicky, right. I certainly don't know anything about it. And I don't have the staff to do it. So figure it out. Here's the money. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Wow. I know. So we had two actors who were equity, uh, actors' equity. So I had to figure out how to do the contracting and how to pay them. And mm-hmm. this thing called paymaster, where like if you have actors, if you're a small theater group, you can hire a paymaster. And what happens is that they will figure out what you owe to the actors who are in actors' equity, and basically you send the money to the paymaster and then the paymasters will cut their checks for them. So like every week that check is coming not from you, but from the paymaster. And so you don't have to worry about taking out taxes or anything like they, they calculate what all of that is and you just send them the money and then they cut the checks. So I had to learn- oh, That's fantastic. <laughs> I know, it's not it cool? Yeah. Yeah, so I had to learn how to do all that. And I was responsible for like hiring the designers and putting together the production budget. And, and all of that and paying the actors. And, and so I was that guy that had, that I was like, so there's this one actor in the show whose son was like, uh, whose son plays in the NFL. And so he would never cash his on time I guess, because his son played in the NFL. And so I'd be like, uh, homie, I need you to take a check, go yeah. to the bank and cash it. So I didn't like. Get, so you can do the books. You can get, make sure that
0: everything is correct, man. right?
1: And I, I got to deal with this, with this balance and make this all work. Uh, so it's responsible for everything. So basically, all the money and documenting and making sure everything went where it was supposed to go. But the wonderful thing of it and the great gift of that was, as a playwright, I controlled the purse strings. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. And so she if there the play- was, No, i'm listening yeah oh yeah so like, if there were things that i felt really passionate passionate about like i really feel like from a particularly from a design standpoint like i i really feel like this story would benefit from boom 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 an example of that is um there's a gun in the play and like we kept playing with all these really fake looking guns that were just like i don't know if it's going to work for us like They looked real, but they weren't real enough. And Mm -hmm. I was able to be in charge of saying, what can we do? And our stage manager was like, oh, there's a company. There's a a guy in Virginia or someplace where you can rent guns from him, like all kinds of arms. And they've been, like, manipulated so they can't actually kill anyone. But you can still you can still use them, you know what I mean? And they, they're completely wow. authentic and they look real and they, they function real. You just can't shoot anybody with them. Uh, or like being able to say, we have a telephone in the play. The telephone rings. When the telephone rings, I want the actual telephone to ring. Like I felt empowered as a playwright to say that. And then able to say, what does it, what does it mean to make that happen? And what does it cost to make that happen? And I was in control of the money so I could figure out how to make that work. And it wasn't me going, oh, God, here's some design things that really matter to me that I think are really important. I hope somebody will do this. It was like, no, I can actually make this happen. Amazing. You know? That is so
0: cool. And yeah. I got I to gotta
1: raise my glass to
0: on on this for giving you that. Okay. Sort of- I mean, that... I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's amazing. The fact that she trusted you to take this and run with it and yeah. seemed to open up a lot of doors for you by doing this. Like that is really, that is really something you don't hear that very
1: often. So, yeah. you know, it was a really amazing experience.
0: Vicky. if you're listening, you know, you know, God bless you for, for, for doing this because <laughs> yeah. that, you know, like you really are doing the Lord's work you know, by, by doing this. So, right. Uh, yeah. So, um, so for for everything that you that you've done, for all the experiences that you've had, um, what do you have to say for the up and coming playwrights that are looking to people like you for inspiration? What is it that you have to offer them in terms of um, what you can say to kind of keep them going?
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things would be um, a to not compare yourself uh, to others and to not compare yourself, to not compare your trajectory to somebody else's trajectory, you know? I think that's the thing that I still at times get hung up on. And I think that's the biggest thing that can hang you up is when you look at other people and you're like, oh, well, so-and-so is doing this, I would like to do that. Or I'm not doing that, so I'm not really doing anything. Like. You, you can't allow yourself to do that because as soon as you do that, that's when you get hung up. And it's also important to remember that in this business, everybody wants what somebody else has. Like, you do, you can be looking at, like, an Academy Award winner, whatever, you know what I mean? And you're like, oh, my God, they have totally, like, climbed the mountain and they've done blah, 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 blah. And there's something that they haven't accomplished that that still haunts them or something that you've done that seems so simplistic and meaningless to you that means so much to them. You know what I mean? So it's important just not to compare yourself to other people. Um, another piece of advice I would give is, and this has been really important to me is to not be afraid to, um, not be afraid to try new things, um, to not be afraid uh, uh, to take a shift every now and then just to see where that might take you, um, because uh, there does come a point when uh, you just have to ask yourself um, what's working for me right now and what's what's not working for me, you know. Right and and to be honest with yourself about that and then to try to figure out uh ways to do that and to accomplish it um uh another really big piece of advice um is to not be afraid of development opportunities i know development gets like a really bad rap and i understand why it can but I also feel, especially for emerging playwrights and when you're just starting out and when you're trying to build a name for yourself, um, that development opportunities, I think in many ways uh, can be the best way to go because uh, a lot like, for instance, a place like Playpen or if you can get into the O'Neill or even, not even places like that. There's so many other really cool opportunities that exist out there that allow you the opportunity to have what uh, can be considered a, a, a professional credit. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And then also more importantly, it just gives you the chance to meet other playwrights uh, and directors and people you would never have an opportunity to meet otherwise. As we all know, you know playwriting is such a lonely profession right um oh, yeah and not just you know it's lonely because you know you're sitting you know in front of, in front of your computer by yourself working not just lonely in that way but even when you get into production when you get into a production situation it's lonely because you're the only playwright in the room
0: mhm
1: you know what i mean yeah. and yeah and and no one really understands actually what you're going through and what you're telling them. Yeah, like Because like,
0: yeah, you're standing like you're standing in the back, just watching them. You're like they're all working to you know memorize exactly. you know, all these lines and everything that you have, and you're just sitting there, just like, is it really any good? You know, is it right? Is it good? Is it working, and, it and you're
1: work? taking notes, and 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 mm-hmm. then decide like. Which notes should I give to the director? When should I give this note to the director? I mean, but it's, it's fairly, it's really lonely. And so the great thing about development opportunities is that that's one of the few times when playwrights get to come together as a group and spend time together and learn from each other and, and what have you. And I think that's really important and valuable. Um, and again, it's an, it's an opportunity to get to meet people and get your name out there and get some professional credits on your resume. Um, yeah. It can be really useful. Um, and then I think finally, uh, uh, when you get opportunities, don't blow them. I mean, that's <laughs> a really <laughs> big one. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So,
0: um, so where can our listeners find you out in, uh, out in the world? You know, and you know, like or out in the virtual world, out in social media. Where can they where can they find you? Where can they learn more about you? Where can they even contact you if they need to? Uh
1: there's obviously my Facebook page. Um and it's just Jonathan. You can find me Jonathan Norton on Facebook. You can friend me friend me. And also I have uh ww.norton dot com. I believe it's dot com. Yeah, I think. It's Norton ScriptWorks, but somehow or another. I I would always think that I was going to get like caught or something that, I've, that I'm sure there's like that's used somewhere else, but it's still out there. So uh, Norton ScriptWorks, and I have a contact thing on the um, on the website. You can contact me. And thanks for asking me about that, because I totally need to update that website.
0: <laughs> and that'll always give you the, uh, yeah, definitely give you the uh, the push to, to do that. So, yeah. Thank um, you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely know what you mean with that. You know, like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very much behind on, you know, kind of updating my own website and updating my, yeah. uh, my own Facebook uh, author page. Yeah. This is uh, this is this has just been awesome being able to you know catch up with you and also you know get a really good firm grasp on your origin story everything that's been going on after we you know lost touch after we graduated from Marymount yeah. and it's just been amazing uh, listening to your journey that you're still on to this day and it's real it's really really something so thank you so much for for being a part of the show Jonathan thank you so much to all of you listeners for uh, for downloading, and um, by all means, please you know keep on downloading, keep on subscribing, keep on rating, keep on reviewing uh, the show 's home base is at Podbean, but you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Spotify, and tune in six different places where you can find this show um, and I really hope that uh, that all of you keep on listening keep on um, keep on downloading and Um, keep on being inspired by stories such as Jonathan's. And uh, for Jonathan Norton, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and we'll see you next week.